Welcome back to a special float conference episode of Art of the Float. We talk with Stephen Johnson tonight, and my goodness, this was a fun one. Get to know Stephen Johnson, get to know how he joined up with the float conference and how he's spoken at every single one. And of course, you know, we're going to talk about exploring consciousness through floating and psychedelics, because that's just what we do. So enjoy this episode. Thanks so much to Helmbot for supporting us and making sure that we can do these special event episodes with the float conference. Helmbot is the de facto software that flow centers are using for scheduling their clients, scheduling their employees, logbook conversations that go on for weeks to help improve the little minutiae within the building. Oftentimes at float centers, you know, everybody's not there at the same time. So the logbook means that you can have this dialogue going uh, until things are totally improved. And then you just automate a task uh, or create a single task within Helm as well. It's a software that is just so accessible. It's easy to use. It's customizable for your business in a simple way as opposed to some more complicated software that exists out there. Go to helmbot.com to schedule a free tour with somebody over Zoom with you, walking you through everything. You can also actually have a demo made for your business and make sure that it's a good fit for you. There's really no reason not to look into Helmbot. We use it at the Float Shop and absolutely love it. Helmbot.com, again, is where you want to go. And thanks to Isopod for supporting us as well. Isopod is the very large, beautiful float tanks that we have at the float shop. We started with one, now we have two. And if a float tank ever dies, we'll get a third as well. If any of our others die, I should say. Uh, because we absolutely love them. Because not only are they built super strong on the inside, and I'm talking about some seriously heavy-duty metal parts that... Um, mean that it'll last a lifetime, but also uh, it's super friendly for people when they see these float tanks and it's a spacious float. People are always concerned before they see the float tank. They're always relieved once they see the isopod. So i-sopod.com is where you want to go to check them out. Again, isopod with a dash in there, .com to look into their float tanks. Uh, we absolutely stand by these. We love isopod. And now uh, Drew and I are going to kick off Art of the Float here. Welcome back to another episode of Art of the Float, Float Conference Edition. Tonight we are talking with Stephen Johnson, who, if you've ever been to a float conference, whose name you will absolutely recognize, whose voice you will recognize, and whose personality and um, oration skills, orator. What's what's the right word, Stephen? You know all the words. <laughs> Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It depends upon what you're thinking of me at this moment. A gifted verbose speaker. I think is how I would describe him. And by the way, I should also say Drew is with us tonight as well. Here in the background, co-hosting. Right on. Right on. <laughs> and Stephen, you know, I know we're probably supposed to talk about, you know, what are you going to talk about at this year's float conference on all, all of that, but if you go to the float conference, we're going to hear about that. I just kind of want to talk to you a little bit about your history with the conference, your history with floating. And um, I, I just want to kind of dig in there. That's what I wanted to talk about tonight. And we can get there, I guess. But Sure, of course we can. Yeah. And kind of specifically, I would be curious personally to find out how many float conferences you've attended, how you got connected with yeah. the float conference, mm -hmm. and... I'm pretty sure you have a long history in the float industry 
that people may not be aware of. But those are definitely um, some three topics that I would like to address here this evening. He asked them better than I did. Same questions, but the way Drew said it. Okay, so I'll begin then. Uh, Please do. I've spoken at all. This will be the 10th float con. I've been at all of them. Awesome. And, and all three of the RISE uh, gatherings. Wow. So, so I, I guess all of them. I guess there's not too many of us that have done all of them. I, I spoke at seven of them was the MC at the eighth, MC at the virtual, which was the ninth, and the MC this time. So it's a little, it's a little harder and a little easier uh, being the MC. It's harder because there's a lot of work involved in terms of trying to come up with, uh, you know, a, a kind of a feeling, a personal, a kind of a personal and yet insightful introduction for everybody. And to keep it really short, because as far as I'm concerned, and I'm doing that doing it already, there's nothing worse than going on and on, particularly <laughs> when you're on stage. Make it short, make it insightful, make it sweet, boom. It takes a lot of work, and you have to be back there all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I get to do the opening and closing remarks, which is really fun, so I don't have to write a whole 20-minute speech. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, and, and, you know, it's the greatest, probably the greatest uh, criti criticism of my talks is that, or in my writing is the same way, uh, is that it tends to be a bit dense. <laughs> there tends to be very little oxygen between the concepts. <laughs> so, uh, so it's not probably better for the people listening if I do shorter opening and closing remarks than to go on for too long. Uh, but so I've been, it's been a complete honor and a blessing for me to be able to uh, become a part of this industry since, you know, I'm not, I don't own a float center. I don't work in a float center. Uh, I consider, and I've said this before in my talks, I consider myself to have become a float contemplative. I, uh, and if you don't mind me launching just a little bit, I'm a lifetime meditator. Uh, Co-led a few retreats, led a few shorter, more creative type retreats, uh, studied, studied multiple different formats. And I've, I've meditated every day for probably 50 years. Wow. And one way or another, it may be, uh, I may not get to sitting in the morning or the evening, but it may be doing a hike or taking a walk that mm -hmm. I zone out. Mm -hmm. So, and I've studied a lot and I've worked, I have many, many hours under my belt. So I was working, I was living in Portland, which hopefully I'll be living there again someday. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, I would like that. Yeah, I, I was uh, working at... Uh, Providence uh, St. Vincent Medical Center as a psychiatric nurse and doing some research. That's how I met Sandra and then thereby met Dylan. Uh, and I was teaching some meditation uh, around town and doing a lot of research in consciousness and as it related to mental wellness as well as mental illness. And I also had a structural integration practice, uh, uh, i.e. Rolfing. And a friend of mine worked for Float On, uh, Anthony, brilliant guy. And 
he said, he asked me if I wanted to speak at the first float conference. Okay. So I, I had floated, but I'd floated in the 70s when I was in graduate school down in Berkeley, uh, but only a few times. And so I figured, well, I better float. So Ashkan and Graham were marvelous in giving me unlimited floats to come in and float. Nice. So I started floating and uh, I meditated before I went in and I laid down, started breathing. I think it took me maybe two minutes to disappear. Wow. I kind of departicalized very quickly. So you were practicing and I, meditation. And I think it was just the breathing and being used to trying to slow the brain waves and to, you know, and to become aware of distractions and not allow them to lodge. And it was like, I just, it, it's really essentially kind of blew my mind. I went in with this, I usually go in with a specific reason. Uh, it, most of my meditations are what they call negative meditations. It's not meditating on something negative. It's just not me, not concentrating on anything. Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. So I went in as in kind of a positive sense that I wanted to focus on a problematic uh, concept that I'm having trouble with, some writing I'm having trouble with, whatever. And it's and the same thing has happened to me over the two, three hundred times I've floated over the last ten or twelve years. I don't know is I'm focusing, I'm breathing, I'm focusing. I, I, all of a sudden I can begin to visual and I can visualize in my meditations, but I would start to visualize what I was thinking of. And I would go, whoa, hmm. you know, and I haven't, I haven't ingested any particular chemical that's gonna allow me to do this. And then it would disappear and I would go away and the music would come up and I get up and I'd come around and I would say, well, I guess that's gone. I guess I lost that. I'd get up, start showering, and boom, there it was. Hmm. Always, whatever question I had was answered in a way that I normally wouldn't have been able to answer in a normal cognitive state. Mm -hmm. I went somewhere else, it was answered, it came back in a creative way, and I went, no, this is interesting. So I floated as many times as I could because there's a lot to think about. <laughs> and it's been that way ever since. And I began to realize I was really exploring consciousness by doing this. So that led to my first, go ahead. Exploring consciousness. Can you elaborate on that please? When, when you say you were exploring consciousness, consciousness is a, that's a big. It's big, big, big. Big big, 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 right? Big, big, <laughs> big, maybe, big. maybe the biggest. Yeah. And right. So what does that mean to you when you say you're so, consciousness? Well, my, my answer won't be probably as clear as it could be, but I think it means that I was, while I was still somewhat conscious, and I believe even in deep sleep and sometimes when you're not conscious, you are conscious at a certain level, mm -hmm. you just don't have access to it. Cool. So I think I was actually, I visualize always in the float. And I think uh, I was, I'm asking questions about consciousness. I'm trying to understand what's happening while I'm in the float just like I do when I'm in a meditation. And it just, 
it began to seem to me that as the brain waves slow down, as you go, as you can tell when you go through alpha, because you're relaxed, you're aware there's still a self, but you're relaxed. And then if you, when you go below alpha into the theta range, and of course, Justin would have a, uh, a fit right now because he says it's not proven that we go into the theta range. Sure. But regardless, whatever it is, you lose, there's a lot of writing about it. You lose a concept of self, you become the witness of whatever's happening internally. So the rise of the interoception, it could be, Mm -hmm. uh, or it could be your your there's visualizations taking place that look to me or seem to me to be manifestations of uh, some sort of consciousness. Something was happening, and I wanted to explore what was happening. Cool. Uh, so my perceptions were changing, and to this day, I believe that the practice of floating, and I speak about this every year, and I'm going to do it again this year for God's sakes is that we go, what happens to our self-consciousness, not speaking of the consciousness of the culture or a cosmic consciousness or anything, mm -hmm. but just our self-consciousness, mm -hmm. is we go beneath awareness to a fluid state where what is, what is defined in reality becomes de-defined. So everything becomes fluid. So definitions, uh, whatever kind of checks and balances or culture or your life have to them and the flow as a practice, you kind of go beneath that kind of like in meditation, but in flotation, it has more of a fluid quality than a quiet quality, although quiet is there as well. So that made me think, well, if perception becomes fluidized, becomes, let's say in quantum, in a quantum way, the particle state of classical reality becomes the fluid state of the wave function that you can reperceive yourself or anything else much more easily than you can going through the normal checks and balances of a conscious self. Right. So it is really the repository of pure creativity. But the concept of creativity is even gone. Right. So it's just like you've even gone beneath creativity, but you can really remake or regenerate almost anything in that state. Now, it takes a practice to be able to get to that state. Mm -hmm. And I understand a lot of people float because they're they want to relax, which is wonderful. But relaxation is the doorway <laughs> to this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and. You want to, uh, you know, there's all that wonderful work that's being done research-wise about anxiety and about a lot of the mental aberrations, as well as sports enhancement and sports recovery. But those are also doorways to the way I think about it, because those are doorways to something much more important, kind of a substrate of the self of consciousness. So how does... Excuse me, I went on a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> At least it was engaging. <laughs> yeah. So, Stephen, I have a question, uh, kind of a follow-up to that. Um, so I am I got into floating from a sports and recovery standpoint, and the more I just started floating, the more kind of, I guess I would say, unexplainable things happened in my experiences while I floated. And right. I've had visualizations. I've, I've 
I don't, I didn't used to consider myself a creative person, but I've come up with a lot of creative things in my life while I was floating to include business ideas and sure. ideas for my business. Sure. And so I've often told people this. So this is, I guess, kind of my question slash I'd like confirmation that just participating in a regular practice will allow you to open up more to these things that can happen without forcing it and trying to make it happen. Right. Right. Is and it, I think, right? I, you know, the operative word you just said was opening. You know, you have to get to where there can be an opening. You know, I taught anatomy for 18 years. And the very first day I would lecture, I would say, people, the deeper you go into the human body, the more it opens. Hmm. So it's even more so that way with the human mind, which of course is maybe an emergent property of the body, of the brain. So I think what you were experiencing was the benefits of a practice that you, you, know, you don't get caught, you know, you don't get hooked by the dogmas or by this or that or anything else, you know, the norms, the mores, whatever you're supposed to do you actually are going beneath that or around it or however you want to look at it, you know, and that in itself is the opening. And then you can re-perceive your business, yourself, your physical practice, your mental practice. I think that's the real beauty of the float. And for God's sakes, it's passive. You don't have to sit with a bad back and knees for an hour and then get up and can't walk for a half an hour. I mean, you lay there and you relax and you get to the very depths of what you are, probably beneath what you are. Uh, and then there's, there is a positive ramification for that. And so a lot of people will probably be in the float and have to process trauma too. You know, I, I had the wonderful opportunity to work a little bit with Stan Groff uh, doing uh, holotropic breath work. And the whole idea with holotropic breath work is you make yourself really comfortable, there's evocative music, and you're breathing deeply but rapidly until you create a right hemispheric shift. I think in a sense, that's also what happens in the flow, that you are leaving the left hemisphere, moving into the less bound uh, right hemisphere. Uh, of course, I have to say that it's the overlap of the hemispheres that are most important, not what the two different hemispheres do, but they do do different things. So I think it makes complete sense. It's very, very creative. Uh, and I think it's the same thing. It's why sports teams, that's why the Warriors float once or twice a week when they're playing, for instance. And it's not just because, according to their speaking, it's not just because they relax and they recover but also they get more creative in their view of the game, their view of the business, whatever. So, yeah, I think it's great. Yeah. So just as a follow-up, I'm like a little bit, I feel like I just kind of put these pieces together that I have, you know, people I've been, I am coming up on four years of being open in November and I have people that have been floating with me for a long time and they're that level of floater that, I try to get new people to, and there's a difference. I can see it 
and I hear it, I hear that feedback with people who have been floating for a long time and made it a regular practice versus someone who dabbles. And that's the challenge as a business owner is trying to get those people to that next level where they're going in there and kind of free flowing with whatever is going to partake that, you know, or whatever's going to happen that day that there is going to be coming to them. And it's really cool to see that. And it's really interesting to, I had like a little light bulb go off as you were speaking and it was, it all kind of made sense about these different levels of customers that I have. And um, there's a lot of people that have come out asking questions about, you know, these things that have happened in their float and I don't really have the answers to them. And no, you know what? Glenn and Lee Perry were right uh, when they always talked about don't tell people what to expect in the float. I mean, you can certainly say what may or may not happen, but every float is completely subjective. Whatever's going to happen is completely theirs at the moment, and it may not repeat ever for them as well. Uh, and that in itself speaks to that whole idea of the perception of self. I think through the float, through meditation, but through the float even more so, it's much easier to begin to to re-perceive yourself in relation to yourself, in relation to the world, in relation to others. It's just easier because you're in that state where it could all manifest and you're kind of immersed in it. And I've been looking more and more at the concepts of immersion and suspension and resonance in relation to meditation, nature immersion, uh, as well as the float tank. And that's a whole other thing. If we get into that, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, I'll be lost forever. We'll save that for uh, the second interview. (laughs) But I love, but it's just fascinating. But I will just say this, because I can hardly stand it. Go. When you're... When you're immersed in the flow, you become suspended uh, in, in terms of your sensitivities, your sensibilities become suspended, right? So, and then when, one, when somebody becomes suspended, they become more sensitized. And they, when they become more sensitized, resonance becomes much deeper and much greater. So things begin to resonate, concepts. You know, when you that's I think that's part of the post float high. You come out and everything resonates much more clearly. Mm-hmm. Colors are brighter. Mm-hmm. Just don't walk by a bar or a grocery store because you're gonna go in, you know. Okay. It's so I think those three, <laughs> those dynamics, the immersion dynamics, suspension dynamics, and resonance dynamics kind of all fit together. One leads to the other, which leads to the other, which leads to kind of being high, feeling better, feeling better about yourself, about the world. And we need to feel better about the world. You know, one of the things I don't uh, generally talk about with customers is my experience floating has uh, on a few occasions felt a lot like a mushroom trip and uh, a very, very much looking at myself, kind of third person awareness. And like kind of a, when you, when you describe observing consciousness, that's felt the two feel very similar to me. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, that's kind of the label for it, isn't it? That's what it feels like, what I'm, what I'm doing. I think that's what happens when you take uh, psychedelics is that you're opening something. You're opening a veil, moving through a membrane, whatever, mm-hmm. but you see things that consensus reality 
cuts out <laughs> because you have to be consensus. You have to follow, you know, our brain is more of a deductor than it is anything else. It deduces the world so that you can have a consensus reality. Sure. But I think there's so much that happens in the brain that is not about deduction. It's about growth. It's about opening. Uh -huh. But our brains, you know, we have to live in this world. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, and we can't always be having speaking to redwoods and whatever, you know. But that's what I think psychedelics do at, for different chemical substances, different kind of experiences, huh. is that they just allow you to see how much more there is. Uh, and that's amazing. That that is a true reperception of self in relation to the world. Right. That we don't see. And that's what the float allows us to do in a safe, simple, relaxing way. That's profound. Without even and, and as a big proponent of therapy, without anybody across from you, it's such a special, unique thing that that kind of problem solving and introspection that occurs without any kind of guidance, completely uh, self, I, whether it's unconscious self. Or, or conscious, I would argue, usually unconscious, self-guided uh, introspection or introception. You know, that's interesting. You would use the word unconscious because I was just writing, just taking some notes for what I'm going to do for my closing remarks. And one of them, and I don't know if I'll use it or not, but one of them was the upwelling of the interoception provides a doorway to the unconscious. And I think that might be kind of what happens in the float. As we lay there in the dark, no sound, no light, the, the uh, proprioceptors and the kinetoreceptors go quiescent, you lose your body. Uh, and then what happens as you begin the interoception upwells, it arises. You can hear the blood in your vessels. You can hear your heart. You, your, your breath sounds different. And then there's all kinds of little tinklings and things going on Eyes and it's, blinking. it's it's yeah it's just your internal self your interoception arises and then even that begins to go away and i think that provides a doorway to the unconscious so maybe hmm. I, don't, I maybe that that's part of what's happening that we are actually accessing the unconscious and according to carl jung maybe we're accessing uh the archetypal realities Oh man, uh, we almost just hit the button on perfect closing, but I gotta gotta ask more. <laughs> <laughs> so, if we're accessing the archetypal, the the, the collective unconscious, uh, I want to say symbols. It's been quite a while since I've done all my reading on Carl Jung, but I'm a, I love his thoughts and his philosophies on how the brain works. But if that if we're getting to that core, what does that mean? Does that mean we can? play with those symbols or with those archetypes or does it simply mean we get to witness them and be aware of them i think first of all we witness and become aware of them and then when we when we do that then we can begin to play with them Jeez. i mean not just necessarily the archetypes that he created which are the archetypes of culture that you know in therapy you can you know you in depth therapy union therapy you begin to align with certain cultural archetypes, you know, manifestations, personages of the archetypes. But I think it, it goes beneath that. And I think you can begin to play with that. And I think symbols is a good word because symbol, a symbol is a loaded thing. Uh, it's, 
uh, you know, it's, it speaks to a remove from reality, but it, be, it becomes more of an, an image of a concept, which is removed and more easily dealt with. That's what a symbol is. Mm -hmm. And you can play with the symbol more. And of course, to really play with symbols, what are you doing? You're, you're then, uh, you're, you're in, into rituals, you're doing rituals. So I think that that's a fascinating aspect of that. And I keep wanting to read from my notebook because a lot of the stuff we're talking about, I'm <laughs> taking notes about in terms of my opening and closing remarks. Oh my goodness. Uh, Stephen, I, I can't wait to see you in person. I can't wait for everybody to hear your opening and closing remarks. Um, thank you so much for, you need to be on Joe Rogan next. I, and, and we also need to start doing two hour podcasts. <laughs> we're just getting warmed up. You guys, it, yeah, I, yeah. Now I'm going to have to shut myself up because uh, <laughs> the the switch has been flipped. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you get to flip it on real soon here again at the Float Conference. And uh, if you see Stephen, you know, buy him a drink, have have a seat, and and uh, have a chat because he is he's one of my favorite people to hang out with. He's uh, just one of the most pure, loving people. And his verbosity is mega. So, yeah. <laughs> hey, you guys, it was lovely to be here with you. Thank you for this opportunity, really. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. Yes, we'll thank you for coming. Thank I you. love you guys. I'll yeah. see you soon. We love okay. you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Yep. Hope you enjoyed that time with Stephen as much as I did. The Flow Conference is August 25th through the 29th. If you don't already have tickets, now is absolutely the time. And I hope to see you there. Floatconference.com is where you want to go to get your tickets. Can't wait for it. See you soon. And uh, until next time, see you next week.